From Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a safety prerogative, this is the source of information on psychological injury prevention and health promotion. Hi, and welcome to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. My name is Jason Van Shee, and I'm one of the hosts of the show. The aim of the podcast is to rapidly increase the knowledge and application of psychological health and safety in workplaces worldwide. To help with this, we have regular guests from around the world who are leading the way in this important area. But before I introduce our guest and topic for today, allow me to introduce my co-host, Joelle Mitchell. How are you today, Joelle? All right, Jason. <clears throat> Recovering from my cold now. I've just got some residual croakiness, but um, no active symptoms, fortunately. Yeah, it was interesting last week to see you not at 100%, and Brendan, um, he was on he fire. He was living his best life, yeah. We yeah. Were, we'd like done a switcheroo, hadn't we? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, um, but you're uh, on the mend. I would say I'm at 90% now, so. Yeah, well, thank you for not getting anyone else in the office sick. I mean, that's sort of, you know, that that's one of the benefits of just having me sat over in the corner all by myself, um, along with my raging inhostility, or hostility rather. Yeah, hostility. <laughs> now, look, we're going to be uh, recruiting some new people soon, and you might have a desk mate at some point in the near future. Is there anything you'd be looking for in a, in a desk mate? I mean... Probably. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Anything. Um, so for our listeners who are maybe mm. like thinking about the hazards of hazards of working at the same desk space as Joel. Like, <laughs> my bark is worse than my bite. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I'm actually lots of fun in the office. Um, <laughs> I'm only, I'm really mean to people who are like senior to me. So um, I think most, <laughs> most people that we'd be recruiting uh, would be safe. Yeah, okay, unless we recruit over the top of you. We might need a um, universal um, psych health and safety manager or something like that. Well, good luck with that. <laughs> I pity the person if we were ever to do that to them. Pity the fool. Yeah, pity the fool. <laughs> All right, great. Well, um, it's nice to hear that the worst of Joel's life at the moment is just a little mild cold. Yeah, I'm getting towards end of term, so mornings are getting a little bit more challenging. I'm sure that parents everywhere can um, empathise with that. Yeah, I can. As a you know, as a parent that helps out with uh, getting the kids ready in the morning and out the out the door. Yes, uh, looking forward to school holidays. That's for sure. Yeah. Mm. Well, look, we should probably uh, get our guest in, eh? Yeah. Yeah. So, I've been looking forward to this guest for a while. Uh, he was the founder of Build Safe Dubai and Build Safe UAE, and is one of twelve mentally healthy workplace ambassadors appointed by the New South Wales government. He's currently the group head of environment, health, and safety, as well as operational assurance at Lendlease. Welcome to the podcast, Chris Doyle. Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for having me. I've been looking forward to this too. Yeah, well, uh, look, Chris, yourself and Len Lease both have really good reputations in the space of workplace mental health. So, uh, yeah, that has been a good get for us to get you on the show and share a bit about what you're doing uh, and, uh, I guess, in broader the industry, where it's going. Yeah, I think um, we've, we've had quite an extraordinary sort of journey in the safety space and um, obviously, that's transitioned well into mental health and psychological safety and uh, obviously keen to shorten the length of that journey because it's taken 20 years to get to this point around physical safety. So, um, so I think there's a lot of learnings that we can piggyback on. And I think just coming out of a pandemic, there's also just this greater expectations of our stakeholders and our people of what we do in this space anymore. So what's gone from a hope is now an expectation. Yeah, great. Look, I'm sure our listeners are going to get a lot out of this conversation today. So thanks again, Chris. So before we get into the serious stuff, um, what are you listening to at the moment, Chris? 
Uh, look, in, in the podcast space, I'm um, probably a bit boring like a lot of other people. I love conversations, podcasts on ABC um, and just people who generally probably never heard of and these great stories of just you know, resilience and um, amazing. And then in the sports space, probably something like the Howie Games because it's something I can listen with my son in the car as either we go back to school or out to somewhere um, of a weekend and it's a bit of a shared experience. So um, probably those at the moment. I, I commute quite a way each day, so I sort of tend to use the time listening to podcasts as much as anything else. Yep, good stuff. Yeah, and great to do with your son as well. Yeah. Uh, my, my son's getting into business wars, which is more entrepreneurial. And it's great that he's got a shared interest with his, uh, with his dad. <laughs> yeah, my, my son is just still listening to um, the Encanto soundtrack all the time. So. <laughs> 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 He's not so down with the podcasts yet. No. Um, all about Bruno. Um, <laughs> all right, Chris, can you um, give our listeners an overview of your professional career, please? Uh, yes, many and varied and certainly not the path I chose when I left school. So I think from the time I was about 12, I wanted to do an environmental science degree when I left school. So that's what I did just down the road from here in at Wollongong. And uh, at that point, I finished university and never thought I wanted to go back and get out there and um, earn in the world. And I had an offer to go back and do a PhD scholarship in environmental engineering. Um, I didn't really want to do it at first. And then I realised that all my really smart friends who got sort of university medal type things were struggling to get employment at that time in the mid-90s as well so I thought okay I'll go back and give this thing a go so um, I did that full-time for about three years and then transitioned to part-time while I did different things around environmental and stormwater and river management Um, at the time I kind of dabbled in professional sports I was a professional rugby union player or at least semi-professional and um, went and lived and worked in the UK for a while and worked at Birmingham University whilst I was playing Um, and then my wife and I uh, decided it was time to move home when our first of our four kids came. So um, came back and got a job uh, working as sustainability manager for a port corporation that was doing a lot of development down at Port Kembla. And out of the blue, I had a, a colleague ring and said, oh, I work for Lendlease. We're doing this huge project in Bahrain. Would you like to come over? We've got a huge dredging element and that's what you've been working on at Port Kembla. Um, so despite my degree in geography, I thought he meant Brunei and not Bahrain. So I had to quickly <laughs> realise it was this uh, little island off the coast of Saudi Arabia, which was still quite British at the time. Um, so a family adventure off, we did a year in Bahrain. Um, and then I had a call from our head office over in Dubai and said, um, we need someone to come over to Dubai, work on Dubai Metro Rail, which I did. And be the head of sustainability and by the time I got there they said look we're really looking for a new head of health and safety as well so if we get you off the metro project can you work in health and safety so I, up until that point this is around 2006 I um, hadn't worked in health and safety but um, if any of your listeners know what the working conditions particularly around that time are like in places in the Middle East and you probably hear, hear stories still now around Qatar and the, the football world cup and the deaths around all of the construction associated with that was incredibly confronting. Um, so there was a fatality within three weeks of being in the job in Dubai. There was another one three weeks after that. Um, and it was just this, not just the confronting state of sort of the working conditions that the workers had, um, but also back at the labour accommodation and the bonded labour and the passports being withheld. Um, 
And so personally, it was quite a challenging environment to deal with because you kind of think, I was pretty naive coming here and I guess you've got a couple of options. You can vote with your feet and, and leave from an ethical perspective or perhaps there's an opportunity to lean in and do something different to cause some change. Um, and around that time, organisations like Human Rights Watch has kind of outspoken against the, the government in the UAE or in Dubai and were quickly ushered out of town. So there's obviously a bright way you need to do this. So through the help of Lendlease, we started up a sort of a charitable organisation, which was around shared learning and education. Um, but really, we were focusing at that early point on sort of best practice for site labour accommodation and not waiting for laws to change, but using like-minded companies to say, hey, let's share what we think good and best practice is. And so it evolved to an organisation that had 100 CEOs formally sign a charter in public saying, hey, we want to be part of this. We want to share lessons and we really want to up our game in not only physical safety, but the psychological safety and the living conditions of the workers. Um, and that ran really successfully up until probably uh, 2010, where we probably grew a little bit large and we had some parts of government who were for us and some against us, and eventually we got wound down. Um, and during that same period of time, I'd also taken on a role um, with Lendlease looking after continental Europe, Middle East, Africa and Latin America. Um, and we were probably in about 40 countries at that time. So across the three to four year period, I went to uh, over 30 of those countries, uh, often not for the best reasons. We'd had problem project or a fatality. So uh, it was really just sitting in the trenches with teams in their darkest hour after there'd been something go horribly wrong and um, be there and feel like they were being supported, not someone coming in to sort of frown on them from above or be this heavy hand of the larger corporation coming in going, oh, what have you done? You've, you've let us down. So um, it, it, it was a really huge learning exercise for me, um, especially not coming from a formalised health and safety background and coming from Australia where despite our challenges are around workplace health and safety into these markets, which were nothing like I'd ever seen. And um, I remember one time getting a phone call from uh, Brian Long, who you've had on a podcast earlier saying, Chris, we've uh, had a fatality in Trinidad or in your region. And I said, we don't, we don't work in Trinidad. And so three hours later, I find out actually we do work in Trinidad. There's a project there we didn't even know about that there was a fatality. So there's things like this that would happen all the time or there'd be a fatality in the middle of Ukraine and you'd drive or you'd fly three flights to an airport and then it would be five and a half hours in a car to get to this cement plant just in the middle of nowhere, but it was enormous. And you just think, how do we get into these circumstances and places? Um, so that was quite the journey. And at that point, towards the end of the 2010s, um, sort of Lendlease, despite having this great safety culture on paper, then sort of had to go through this second transformational journey to go, how does that actually turn into a good performance from a health and safety perspective? So around that time, we moved back to Australia. And so for the last 10 or 11 years in various group roles at Lendlease, I've been back here based in Sydney. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, a lot to take in. Yeah, no, that's... Um... <laughs> Yeah, that, that's an incredible um, career path that you've had there. And um, I think what a what a fantastic thing to be involved in, um, sort of in that, you know, collaboration of companies choosing to um, take steps, you know, ahead of, ahead of government um, to actually try to improve things um, for their workforce when they could see that that was necessary, um, despite the absence of um, 
any laws requiring them to do that. Um, so, you know, that's that's a great example, I think, of, um, yeah, companies actually being able to do that um, and choosing to do that. And I think we're seeing a little bit of that now in Australia in response to um, sort of climate policy and that sort of thing as well. So um, interesting to... So, I mean, I guess with your with your background in engineering, did that sort of inform the way that you thought about health and safety management as more of a looking at sort of more upstream um, approaches to improvement? Uh, definitely. And I think, I think over time, my view was um, I, I've had a lot of leaders say, oh, I'm about to do a project walk. What, what do I meant to look for? And from a health and safety perspective, you know, I, I don't have your eye for it. What do I, what should I be looking out for? And my advice to all leaders would say, well, you've only got to ask two questions. So, you know, outside of the niceties of, of how are you and tell me about your day, it's if you just say to them, uh, if we were back at the start bidding this job, what do you think we should have done differently to help you out? And the second question is uh, to finish this project, what can we do to help? So I've said to leaders, if you just think start, finish, start, finish, you're asking a question about what could we have done different back in the start? And secondly, around what could we do to help finish? And, and so for me, there's a kind of a engineering perspective about going back to the start, which is like if we plan this differently or set this up differently or approach it differently, then surely there's a different outcome that we could do. So um, even, even from a investigation and fatality perspective, um, I came pretty early on to a view that there was such a, a blame culture around the here and now, and I used to find that no matter what market I was in, it kind of suited everybody to find a party to pin something on. So it, it often suited the regulator from a statutory purpose. It suited the client. Uh, it suited the lawyers, whereas there was no greater understanding as to, well, if we're all in this together, what all of us could have done differently? And that goes right back to the start of the project. And if the issue is we didn't give it enough time or we didn't give it enough resources or we've approached something technically um, to make it difficult for the delivery team, then I think there's a more holistic approach to learning about how could we prevent this from happening the next time rather than, you know, who, who's at fault here or who's at blame and let's leave it at that. Yeah, and obviously the, I guess, the the controls or the um, the fixes are much more complex when you're taking that approach rather than, oh, we need another procedure or we'll discipline this person and put them through retraining. Yeah, that's right. And I, I think like as an organisation around that 2010s period, we'd, we'd gone through the 2000s with um, averaging seven fatalities a year. So, and we were 10 years into a um, heavily invested safety cultural program, which was fantastic and everywhere you go, people would talk about this cultural program. They knew it by name, they knew it by acronym. And we got there and said, well, if it's so great, why are we still having seven fatalities a year? And why are we looking at photos going, that's not us. So there was a number of sort of transformations that went on sort of between 2008 to 12. One of them was having global minimum requirements, which was, well, if, if wherever we operate, no matter what the legislation is, here are the minimum standards that you will expect to see and here's what we won't accept anymore. And then by 2010, where we didn't see any improvement, we thought, okay, if we, if we can't meet those requirements because of either the market that we're in or more often than not the contract type that we had, because we did a lot of project management work where we weren't in financial control, but we're in a position of influence. Um, if we can't work safely, then we will move out of those markets. So 
And fortunately for Lendlease, we're not a commodities company. We don't have to go to where the natural resources are. You actually have a choice where you want to work. So we got out of those markets. Um, and so eventually over the course of three or four years, we rationed from 40 countries down to 10, um, similar to what we are today. And it was an interesting time because there was a lot of um, people objecting, saying, well, ethically it's wrong to move out of these markets because someone less safe will go in. And, and so that was debated a lot at all levels, the organisation. And uh, I recall the CEO of the time said, you know, we've got 15,000 employees, do not want to sit any of our employees on a location where they're at risk of being killed or seriously injured because we can't meet our own standards. So if I can't walk my employees out to that location, we will not work there. So that was pretty powerful at the time and I think is really sort of set in train the expectations around what we'd see. So um, after 70 fatalities in the 2000s, um, it's, it's down to 10 in the last 12 years. So still 10 too many and not something we sort of shout from the rooftops, but to, to basically see such a significant change from one decade to the other in the same line of work has been pretty remarkable along the way. Yeah, that's, um, yeah, just fascinating from a, even just from a company perspective, thinking about, you know, the decision-making processes that, that go into that and sort of the way that you're choosing to prioritise um, your, your business decisions, yeah. Yeah, and uh, really interesting given the um, what's happened recently with the ILO decision to add health and safety to work at fundamental rights uh, as the fifth one. So, um yeah, interesting to see if markets start to mature with the ILO kind of pushing this a bit harder. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. And we've seen this probably in the ESG space a lot that um, I guess there's a lot of opportunities out there for companies of all types to be able to broadcast or show where they're doing well in a particular area. Um, and I think one of the things that um, held us in good stead for the last 20 years is that we include anybody that walks onto our sites in all of our statistics. So, so currently we're down to, I think it's 10,000 employees, but today there's 50,000 workers across 10 countries on our site. So all the hours, all the incidents, if there's fatality, they're all included. Um, so when, when we went and did a report for some shareholders and analysts two years ago, and we looked at transparency in, in the market, in the industry, not just in Australia, but some of our peers worldwide, um, we kind of found that we were standing alone on a lot of things. We, we contact other companies and say, okay, would you report in your annual report this fatality or that fatality? And of the 80 fatalities in 20 years, our competitors were reporting somewhere between four because we've had four employees out of those 80 through the 40, which was about the number where we had sort of statutory operational control. And so we found even in, in an ESG or an environment uh, reporting perspective, um, whilst there's an opportunity for you to choose what your scope is, if for some companies that scopes only your employee base or we have legal control, then um, I guess they're not probably leaning into what maybe their ethical obligations are in those circumstances. So um, at, at the same time, you're kind of putting a big target on your head saying that, you know, we've, we've had to go to many uh, annual report and report to the market. We've had a fatality where we know that our competitors aren't doing the same thing. But if you don't do that, you'll never feel what our people and our projects are feeling. You'll never understand what it's like for the workforce on the projects that we're either financing or helping build. So I think from an ethical 
perspective, um, transparency is sort of really important. I think we're just starting now to move into that phase now around ESG reporting. Yeah, and it's a, a great stance by Lindley's because you do hear of companies, you know, outsourcing the risk. Um, and they go, well, we're going to, you know, get a subcontractor to do that role. We're not going to get our own employees to do it because we don't want anything that happens to be reflected in our annual reports. So, yeah, yeah great. And then that obviously then would um, incentivize Lendlease to work through their supply chain to help them to realise improvements in their health and safety. Yeah, exactly. And um, and I think through, through that journey where you sort of look at whether it be an incident or a problem project and take ownership of, you know, what's happened to all the experience of all the people on it, I think that's where you start getting the understanding of what's the pressure that we've put people under and so so whether it's you know we've we've finished a shopping center and there's lots of defects and quality issues or whether it's you know we've had a, a near catastrophic incident on a project you kind of start if you keep looking down as to what are the underlying issues on the project uh, more often than not we see like time and time pressure and pressure to deliver as an issue and, and even sort of gold star projects like where we're sitting now here at Barangaroo um, you know, we had some circumstances where the delivery team pretty much worked the last 10 weeks straight without a break every day. And just to hear the stories at the end where no one was killed or no, no, there was no major incident or issue to talk about, but just people lamenting that, you know, they had to relinquish coaching their child sport team on the weekend because work took over or their wish was to have dinner with the family one night a week. And you just think it's our decisions that actually, you know, lead to that outcome. And, and so we, we spent a lot of time focusing on things that could kill people instantly. And then we move into occupational health where it's around how do we sort of kill people slowly and now we're evolving into well, what is it around the person and their sort of well-being that we're slowly breaking down and need to understand our role in all of that. Yeah, and I guess that's a really good segue into where we want to go with this conversation, which is looking more at the mental health uh, aspects and the psychosocial elements um, that are related to people's health and well-being. So um, leading on from that, um, what would you say is the level of maturity of workplace mental health at the moment in the construction industry? Uh, it's moving rapidly, but still far behind where we're at with physical safety. And I think for a lot of the reasons I've said, I've, I've got a, um, a lived experience around mental health, both from a broader family perspective and our own just being run down to the point of just collapsing by trying to sort of service everything and everyone at the same time and not saying no. So I've, even as myself, I kind of have learned the hard way. And so I think what, what we're trying to now break it down to as, as an organisation, there's two responsibilities. There are people who come into our workplaces, whether they work for us or not, where there are issues underlying or from outside of the workplace that they bring in. And sometimes they just need support. And so our role as an organisation is to be able to provide that support and maybe even help steer them in the right direction. It's one of the reasons why we've mandated mental health first aiders on every office, every construction project, every asset under management that we have, because we want to be that sort of organisation that uh, try to break down the stigma and help support people in need and help steer them in the right direction. So I guess that's the first part. Then the second part is, well, what is it about the workplace that could actually either be 
creating an issue with someone where there wasn't an already underlying one or actually whatever people bring into the workplace is exacerbating it by what we're asking them to do. And so I think there's been a lot of work around understanding the behaviours and bullying in particular that are often associated with, you know, construction projects and construction sites. So, so I think there's a long way to go, but the understanding around what we need to do around workplace bullying and harassment is pretty clear. I think the understanding of what what pressure is fair and reasonable that we bring to bear on what we ask people to do at the workplace, I think there's a lot to it because, you know, I think that if you said to someone, well, you know, I don't think it's very fair that the workers have to work so many hours, some people's response would be, yeah, but that's the industry. They love Saturdays. They get paid time and a half. They love overtime. This is what they save up for and they can go on their surfing trips to Bali or on their holidays. Is You know, this is the workforce actually, if you ask them, probably like doing this. Well, um, we have asked them and they don't like it as much as we assume that they do. And I think since the pandemic, they like it even less. So I think that there used to be a white collar, blue collar divide that we used to describe in the industry. And I think during the pandemic, that the lines got blurred on all of that. And so in our organisation, there were those of us generally office bound who worked from home. And then there is our construction site teams, there's our retirement village teams, our shopping centre teams, who literally left home during the pandemic and went to their place of work for the last two years. And so, you know, that continued on for two years and is continuing. And then us folk are in the office who kind of, we're still talking around, do we come back two days a week or three days a week or four days a week? And um, do I choose the day I want to come in because, you know, someone I don't particularly like won't be there or I can do yoga at lunchtime on that day? So we're actually sort of in a really interesting place at the moment because if we're not careful, the divide, what we used to call white collar, blue collar divide, now those who are people facing and those who are office focused, that divide could actually become really different in a whole other way because of the way that we're managing return to office and getting people back into the workplace in our office environment, very different to what we're managing with our you know, construction sites and operating assets where the journey has just continued on without a break or a change. Yeah, interestingly, the whole, um, oh, well, you know, they want to work the overtime because they get the extra pay, um, that sort of assumption. And I know, um, you know, in the in the FIFO sort of mining and offshore industry, a lot of the time we hear that around roster patterns that, oh, people don't want to work a one-on-one because they like to, you know, have a, a two-on-one or a three-on-one because because they get paid more um, and well, where's your evidence to actually support that? And is that actually the case? Number one and number two, whether they prefer that or not from a financial perspective, what are your duties to actually protect their health? And that overrides anything from a, um, you know, from an industrial relations perspective, um, your, your obligations around protecting their health. Uh, um, yeah. Supersede anything else in that situation. I think, um, the, probably the most mature conversation we've had around this in the last 12 months has um, actually been from our team in Malaysia because in our own global minimum requirements, we've we've put in there that, you know, we don't want anyone working more than 60 hours a week and they need to ask for an exemption if, they, if people are at risk of working more. Um, and under the law in Malaysia, a worker can work up to 90 hours a week, believe it or not. So as our team are looking to bring in the mandate to 60 hours, our supply chain was coming to us and saying, look, we've got an issue here. If 
um, by restricting a land lease project work, what you're actually doing is these workers will go and do 30 hours somewhere else because they're, they're foreign labour, they're from another country in Southeast Asia, they want to maximise the work in the hours while they're here. And the risk is they'll go somewhere less safe than your site. They'll come to your site tired after working doubles or weekend or whatever that whatever their challenge is. So our team thought about it and said, look, what, what we'll do is we will keep them on our site um, full time and we will manage the workloads, we will manage the breaks, we will manage the consecutive days and allow them to be paid as if they were working the full log of hours. Um, and so ironically, out of somewhere where we're literally agreeing to a, a non-compliance with our own policy, it's actually been the most mature conversation and step forward, which then brings into conversation what we can do with the government or the regulator to actually, you know, is there a different way that we can do this and approach this? So um, we're seeing these workers as people, not commodities in the market, and we're able to help drive a challenge. And a bit like with Build Safe Dubai, you start finding other organisations who are like-minded, who have the same challenge, who are with you on this, that um, hopefully you can drive some change with and work with those partners to, to see a change from the better in, in what the expectation and what they're allowed to do in those markets. And, and so differently, even here from in Australia, I think that um, there's all the good intentions on a lot of projects, but it's that pressure that then comes to bear around uh, the, you know, the facade panels arrive two months late and to meet our sort of practical completion target, we're just going to have to pedal as hard as we can. There's always going to be a part of that. But I think, you know, thinking more around the what if and how do we resource that and, and what can we do differently than just assume that everyone will just work till they can't work anymore is probably a, a way around that we need to think about and become part of the costing. And, and part of that challenge is that, you know, financial capital is very finite. And you do an analysis and say, well, what's what's the people capital risk of that decision? Then there's no number or figure that, that stacks up against it. So I think in this emerging market of social return on investment, I think it'd be really powerful when we do a lot of front-end management to understand the cost of burning people out or, or working so fatigued and what it does you know, to them and their family and their communities because that's what we're now starting to see in those social return on investment analysis is an actual number of, of what it really costs to to basically injure someone from a psychological perspective is another way to look at it. Yeah. You've, um, I think, articulated quite well there the you know, the reasons why we have um, objectives-based approaches rather than um, prescriptive-based approaches because you can, yeah, you can meet those prescriptive requirements but um, you know, from that more holistic perspective, people are still putting themselves at risk and, you know, then they're coming back to work and they're bringing that risk with them. So, um, you know, looking at it from that objectives-based perspective, well, how can we actually meet our overall objective of providing or ensuring people are safe at work? And that's not necessarily going to be achieved through following these um, prescriptive elements that we've got. Yeah, and I think you know, this is where it can get really challenging in the mental health space is, um, is understanding, well, let, let's go back to those first principles. What are the objectives? And I hear a lot, you know, beat employer of choice. And, and that's, that's kind of almost like a level higher again. It's kind of what's the lived experience that you want people to have. And, and I often say that 
Um, you know, when, when someone comes onto one of our projects, it's great if they can have an aha moment and goes, wow, someone thought about me a year ago because the time I've been given or the equipment I've been doing or the environment that I'm working around is different to what I'm used to because someone's clearly cared about me and the work that I do. Like that's that's really the objective that I, you know, I think we're trying to, to do through this exercise is have people go, um, wow, I love working on a land lease project because they actually care about us. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that brand value is just massive, right? When people are trying to recruit and retain talented workers. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's been, it's really been tested for a number of reasons coming out of the pandemic. So, you know, like a lot of companies we've downsized, it's a really hot market. So um, in a lot of our markets around the world, particularly in the U S um, there's been people just wanting to scratch the itch, something that they just didn't want to do and coming out of the pandemic wanted to try it. So the, the movement of people in both directions is, um, I mean, it's fascinating to watch, but certainly challenging to deal with when you're trying to, to maintain a culture. And we recently had a safety culture and climate survey, which we hadn't done one since 2019. And um, it was interesting that the highest scores come from the new starters in the organisation. They've kind of come in and said, you know, wow, this you're pretty genuine about this stuff. I've, I maybe heard about it, but it's really real. Whereas those of us who've probably been around for a lot longer seem to be a lot more cynical in, in our responses. But it's like what you say, right? In Australia, you know, we feel like we've got some big gaps in how we do health and safety, but internationally, you know, we're actually seen as world, world-class, right? When you, particularly with some of the stories that you're talking about in the Middle East. Yeah. And look, there is definitely a place for, for legislation and, and you know, probably in that space, the UK and some of the areas that we work in have been a leader for a while in, Sort of legislating the right outcomes and driving a higher standard across the market, and we're we're probably not that far behind, but they've probably been a bit ahead in some of their design regulations than we haven't. On the back of sort of Opal Tower in Sydney and, and other sort of construction issues, we've probably seen more of a push now for a bit more front end and design thinking. But um, and then the evolution of that then goes into the lived experience and the worker experience in in different industries and. Um, almost down to, I guess, regulating hours of work. And and so if there's a lot of, um, you know, unions in our country get a lot of good and bad press, I guess, depending on on where you stand in, on the equation. But um, I think around the mental health, there's a lot more of a, a shared agreement around the outcomes and, and how to get there. Whereas possibly in, in safety, there's agreement on the shared outcomes, but maybe not on the how you get there. Yeah, and definitely something that's been coming down from both regulators and unions is for companies to, I guess, hold up their end of the bargain when it comes to workplace mental health and think more systemically about some of the things you've been referring to around what are the pressures that we're putting on our people um, that might be having a detrimental effect on their mental health and looking at you know, those psychosocial factors. Uh, I mean, you're in New South Wales and, and the Safe Work New South Wales brought out their code of practice, the first code of practice that was industry agnostic, um, I should say, because we did have the FIFO code of practice first in WA. But, um, you know, uh, that came out with a real focus around let's get to root cause and eliminate at source where possible or reduce risk by, you know, engineering or redesigning the work. And then internationally, we've seen the ISO 45003 standard come out um, just over a year ago, actually, it's just mm. gone past 12 months. Um, so I guess on that, uh, within Lendlease and within the industry more broadly, are you seeing 
more companies, when they think about workplace mental health, think more systemically and about psychosocial risk management? Yeah, and they definitely are. And I think there's there's always, a, even with our, our own organisation, like who owns it? Does does the HNS team own it? Does the people and culture team own it? Does the sustainability team who have more of an uh, uh, outward facing in some of their social elements of their team? And so what we're finding is, is that sometimes it can either have everybody pushing forward and crowding the room or everybody stepping back and going, who actually leads this? And we probably had a little bit of both over the time, over the last few years and now getting into a probably good connected, collaborated approach. And so when it's health and safety and you go, okay, that's the EHNS team's role and they've got professionals who are trained and have qualifications in that, you kind of now look back around some of those items around the mental health space and we're going, well, actually, who is technically sort of leading their people to be more trained in this space. So I think that's really unresolved. And I know we're not the only organisation who grapple with that. I think sort of most organisations are saying, okay, well, where, where is the inspiration and the technical sort of requirements coming from to help us with whether it's a standard or whether the legislation to, to implement it. So I think that's something we definitely haven't resolved and are probably looking to do. And other organisations are the same. In fact, if in all four regions of Lend Lease, there's probably a, people would think there's a different function who's really taking the charge and leading in that mental health space um, just because at one point in time or another, someone who really was passionate in a key position in that region took the lead and went with it and they've kind of it stayed with that part of the team. Whereas now there's probably more of an opportunity to look at it holistically and get some commonality into where that is and and sometimes it can be something as simple as a change in standard or or legislation that can help create that shift yeah we're definitely seeing when we go into companies for the first time one of the first jobs we need to do is to articulate who's responsible for what element of this uh, and particularly if you think about the integrated approach um, thinking about Tony La Montagna's model around you know prevent promote and uh, uh, what, what does he call it? It's not mitigate illness in his model, it's respond. Um, but there's so much that a company can be doing across the whole spectrum or continuum of mental health. And it does really touch most functional teams, whether that's injury management, HR, people and culture, health and safety, sustainability, kind of like bridges all of those different groups. So it's really outlining who's responsible for what element and how do they all talk to each other and interrelate um, so that it is quite coherent. Because I can imagine in a large company like Lendlease, it could get messy very quickly. Uh, and then, like you say, you've got your people with the different passion projects. and They want to get involved in maybe stuff that maybe isn't part of their functional uh, team, really, duties. Yeah, and we've in our global minimum requirements around uh, environment health safety, at the front end where we bid work, there's sort of an assessment against time pressures on the project and, and what the risks are to people. In the delivery specification, there's mental health, which looks around the mental health first aiders and having a plan for each project and um, the hours that we work. So there's kind of a natural, a, a natural assumption that, well, EHS must own the lot because they're the only part of the organisation who seems to have legislated it in the company. So even with that, because the, the HR team or the people and culture team, they're doing the learning and development programs, they're doing the outreach program, they're bringing the programs into the office. So... Um, the disconnect we probably have at the moment is that it's very clear that in the office space, it's people in culture, but out on the projects, it's EHS taking the lead because they're the functional site. So 
I think it, it leads to um, some challenges to have around the HS professionals and their, I guess, confidence and capability into feeling comfortable in this space as well, because um, it's a completely different science. Yeah, and, and there's definitely some uh, high-level conversations we've been having um, both in New Zealand and Australia regarding um, the competence and capability of the health and safety profession in this space, um, given they already understand risk management, um, but we're now talking about a new set of um, hazards. Um, you know, it's, it is a bit of a learning curve, but we, we think it's not insurmountable. Yeah, and no, I think particularly once you get to the point of, um, you know, what do we do about these hazards and risks now that we understand them and that's really more where the um collaboration with hr needs to happen because a lot of that you know if you're looking at um things like what what the new regs are saying and what the codes of practice are saying that you should be preferencing you know work design um you know a lot of that comes into you know od is typically sort of grouped under the hr umbrella um and that's where you actually need some really competent um od professionals to be able to come in and provide that advice on what type of job redesign needs to happen but a lot of that um you know in terms of the functional ownership of those um processes um a lot of that will sit under the hr umbrella as well mm. and and for us and even just going back to the fact that even in the workplace that we're currently in there's a refresh that's going on around, you know, what what is it that we need in the workplace now that everybody's doing Teams or Zoom calls and um, that we're probably going to have people not in the office five days a week. And just it's just been interesting from the outside looking at that thought process and the science that's applied to it around that workplace design and thinking around, you know, wow, it's more challenging than I thought even just to get the office environment right yeah, added complexities of being out on a construction project um, are just something else. And so it's a constant reminder of, you know, we're probably nowhere near the finished article in that space around workplace design. We're kind of thinking at it from how can we get the best out of time, cost, resources effectively um, and not really being able to step back. Because ultimately in the game that we're in, moving to controlled environments, whether it's off-site manufacturing, logistics centres and construction sites, converting into being assembly sites, not a place where raw products come and, and get put together. That's obviously a longer term game that the whole industry is moving to, but that's a very psychologically unsafe place for a lot of people to get their head around because it's very threatening for literally thousands of workers who turning up to site and helping pour concrete and wire things manually is all they've known and all they do. So the thought that that might actually get transferred off-site to a pre-cast or pre-manufactured space like a factory and put out on site, um, you know, is is one of the huge challenges that's going to come with moving forward in the sector, which really hasn't had its digital revolution yet. So when we get into this sort of fourth industrial revolution, which is, you know, our, our construction sites are more like Lego, then uh, how we how we manage people and deal with expectations and the stress that come with that, um, I, I think is something that's probably not that far over the horizon. Yeah, no, it's really interesting um, how you describe that. You know how the digital revolution hasn't hit construction yet, but uh, I can definitely see prefab, um, you know, really having a big impact, I guess, uh, on the way work is done on a construction site, like you say. Um, my son might actually get interested then if it's like 
putting together Lego, <laughs> very, very big Lego. Um, but Chris, you talked about, you know, n- not necessarily having clear ownership of certain uh, roles within, I guess, the workplace mental health uh, portfolio, if you like. Um, that is a, you know, a big obstacle for this becoming more mainstream, thinking about workplace mental health more systemically or putting a risk-based lens on it. Uh, do you see any other obstacles? Uh, because obviously it's, you know, it's not going to be long before the states start adopting the model uh, psychological health regulations. Um, so it'll be a level up, obviously, from the current code of practice in terms of the um, requirements on employers. Um, so do, do you see any other obstacles in construction specifically about the adoption of those regs or taking more of a risk-based approach to mental health? Um, I think depending on what comes out of it, there's a number of, um, I guess, all organisations grapple with, and it's probably in the behavioural space. So it's you know, so, someone who's not a high performer or helps win deals to make the organisation a lot of money, there's probably no tolerance for them to behave poorly. But what is the tolerance for someone who is what we call a rainmaker and is actually just such a a source of uh, income and knowledge or ability for the company to meet its financial objectives? Um, How much of sort of poor behaviour do we tolerate in that space? Now, you know, I I think we're pretty fortunate because I think compared to a lot of other places and people I talk to, we clearly don't have too many of them. They don't come out and survey, but I think... That in, in a current climate, that's what a lot of organisations are, are grappling with, is that people who are uh, amazing performers at helping the company meet financial objectives, um, but the, maybe the, the path of destruction around people psychologically that sometimes they leave behind, how, how do we deal with that? And so I think that that's, that's an area where employees are going to look at employers and go, how serious are you? about this, you know, you might be able to say on paper, you meet your obligations, but if the behaviours of key people are tolerated because they're valuable to us, then I think that's a huge challenge. Um, And, you know, I think we even see that in politics that, you know, I don't think there's a whole heap of great examples of good behaviour out there, same in the the political arena. So I think that that's something that each organisation will face. And then how true to our word are we under pressure so, um, you know, I've spoken over the years around the discretional safety spend of mega organisations, and even they would, would tell you that when times are good, we can spend a million dollars on a safety program, no matter what. But if the price of a commodity or a product drops rapidly, then there's no discretional spend either. So what's an organisation like when it's only their goodwill available to, to make this happen? versus when they can just throw a lot of money at it. So um, both, both, I guess, come down to the core ethics of the organisation. And so I think those who are ethical leaders now will be the ethical leaders in, in the future because it's it should be part of their DNA, whereas I think there'll be a lot of organisations who will be a bit of a shooting star in this space because um, it's good PR, but will it stand the test of time? Yeah, really interesting. Mm. So... I guess going back to sort of talking about um, upstream approaches and we were talking about that more from a health and safety lens, but from a, from a psych health and safety lens, what does a truly upstream approach look like um, for, the, for the construction industry? Yeah, so um, we're, we're looking at this live at the moment. So we've had a new CEO come in in the last year 
um, was running as the CEO of our Asia business and got a lot of um, hands-on experience from the portfolio in Asia. And has come back and saying, you know, I really want to focus on psychological safety and, and I don't want to reinvent the wheel. We're doing some really good things, but we've had a transformational safety journey that's got better and better over 20 years. So I want to jump in the slipstream of that. And I think that between that and some of our sort of quality issues, whether it's something blowing off a building or water ingress into someone's apartment that we can look at. And the joint area that we look at those is when we actually bid a project. So um, there's expectations in the organisation that um, when a project bid goes up for approval, they're an independent team who is looking at that bid, not just from a, you know, does it stack up from a financial sense, but they're actually interrogating what's the lived experience, what's the journey going to be like. So um, I think we admitted as an organisation, we'd approve a lot of projects based on destination risk. Can we deliver by that date um, and for this price and generate that profit? Now there's a lot more interrogation of what will their lived experience be and what we're looking to sign up to. So it goes right back to the hours of work, the supply chain capability and partners that we work with, the equipment that we use and the time that we're asked to do it in. So therefore we can get a much better understanding of what will those pressures likely to be, knowing that things will come along the way. But at a starting point, because we... We did some work uh, in 2018 and realised that critical incidents, which are our most serious sort of level of safety incidents, so these are incidents where someone could have been killed or permanently disabled because we had failure of controls. And so a project that was running at least 30 days late was four and a half times more likely to have a critical incident than one that was on time. So not rocket science, but we definitely had been able to actually look at years of data and statistically show that's the way. Now, um, we didn't, we, we can't measure that from a mental health perspective, but our assumption clearly is that um, this, you could probably say that that project's at least four and a half times more likely to have people under psychological duress because of that same issue. And therefore quality is at risk, safety is at risk, their actual uh, willingness to stay with the company either to the finish of the project or beyond is equally at risk as well. So you kind of get one chance to kind of set this project up correctly. And so um, setting up operations or our teams for success has become a mantra in the organisation. And, and now it's not just around the physical safety, it's around psychological safety and product safety. So as we sort of shift into this newish era, it's really joining up the objectives and the thinking by basically knowing um, you know, a bad deal means we're more likely to have things go wrong from a number of perspectives, but more importantly, from the, the lived experience of people who will be asked to work on the project. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's, for me, there's really clear relationships between um, mental health and then, you know, safety and quality outcomes. Um, for me, those are really interconnected and it's, you know, bleedingly obvious that if you've got somebody who's, you know, experiencing a high level of stress or getting to a point where they may be, um, you know, experiencing a diagnosable um, psychological illness, that those are going to have very clear knock-on effects to their performance at work. And that includes safety outcomes and quality outcomes and um, productivity outcomes and all of that sort of thing. So I think that, you know, it's, it's very clearly a performance shaping factor um, in any sort of risk management framework. Um, what I'm interested in is how do you maintain 
line of sight at an executive level to those um, sort of psychosocial hazards? Yep. Um, it's a great question because I think from a number of perspectives, we're only just starting to get a handle on it from a sort of physical safety perspective through digital tools and greater oversight. In fact, the pandemic was a huge lesson in how do you monitor a project remotely because people couldn't gather and do assessments or audits or reviews or even just site walks and visits to check in with the team. So you had to really rely on technology. So, you know, I, I think there's, you know, the obvious simple first steps, whether it's pulse checks or checking in with the team, but it's actually broadening the scope of, well, what is it that we want to check in with on a project? And one of the simple things has been, you know, historically doing a review or a visit or an order or an assessment check has been very review mirror approached as into, well, if I kick the tires, what's the site look like today? And have they had any bad performance in the last little while? Um, looking more ahead, so coming and saying, well, this is all about the next 90 days and yes, we'll walk the job and we'll have a look and there's, there's probably nothing I can tell you that you don't already know about your project, but let's look at the next 90 days and, and talk around what that's going to be like from a lived experience. Who are the new companies that are going to come and work on the project? Are we ready for them? And so shifting to a readiness um, focus, I think is valuable holistically along the same things. Um, and so I think that from that perspective, looking ahead rather than constantly looking behind is, is an important thing. Um, and I think the other thing that um, I may have, should have mentioned earlier that I think we're all grappling with is um, this term resilience. And, you know, resilience could be we had to work three months straight and we did it because we're resilient, whereas I don't, that's not what it's meant to be. And so I think that in a, in a, a sector in an industry where there's probably been termed in the past as sort of, you know, macho or expectation that you just um, shut up and did what you had to because that's the sector we're in. I think truly understanding what resilience means is probably um, an important step of the journey because if we get it wrong, resilience is you become the last sector where working ridiculously long hours or weekends just normally you just put up with it versus, you know, res resilience is a whole different thing and understanding what that means is, is possibly an important step in the journey as well. Mm. Yeah, resilience is uh, often um, used as a fallback for, hey, as a company, we're not interested in engineering out things that are within our control to improve working conditions, to look after people's mental health. So just be more resilient or practice better self-care. So uh, I think it's a bit of a cop-out in, in many instances. I'm not saying it's not valuable, but unless you do that prevent harm piece first, it's kind of like a bit meaningless and can be patronising. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, interesting, you brought up technology and I'm really, um, I'd love to have another conversation actually about what you're doing regarding, you know, your predictive analytics, looking at all of your historical data you've got now around health and safety. That's fascinating to me. Um, but what role do you see technology then playing potentially around um, psychosocial risk management? Um, you know, we've said before, every time we get an understanding that people are feeling feeling challenged or burnt out on a project, it's always weeks after that moment where the tide turned on the project. And, and like everything else, that it's like lag metrics and we're really having a, a challenge understanding about it's too late now by the time we actually go in and work out that this team needs support or this business unit needs some help. And so we're, we're looking at different ways and, you know, it can be as simple as 
you know, when, when you go through, say, Singapore Airport, you go through immigration control, there's, you know, the smiley face or the frowny face. It, it could be as simple as that for some businesses and some organisations. But if you look at artificial intelligence, there's, um, there's a, probably a pretty controversial and unpalatable, depending on where you sit or what geography you're in, way forward that some organisations will look at. So um, our, our large project in Malaysia, it's doing over a million working hours a month between all the workers that are on the project. It's got a pretty complex delineation of zones. And so um, it does facial recognition for the workers as they go through the gates. And if it, that gate won't let that worker in somewhere else um, if they're not meant to be in that zone. And so it's a reasonably sophisticated system that works well. Now, you get talking to the vendors of, of that product and they would tell you that, well, hey, we're also the people that at airports have the thermal imagery and scanning that can literally tell from the thermal scanning people who are feeling stressed or, or there's something not quite right and they're the ones that they often might get the drug dogs to walk by or something like that. And so they turn around and would say, well, we could actually thermal image every worker coming in and out of your gates each day and without identifying individuals still give you an understanding as to other is the physical pressures that are actually resonating in those scans going better or worse um, each day? Is it, uh, is it only those going into this zone or this gate? And so when we sit back from a Australia or UK or US centric view, we probably think, well, that's a huge privacy data protection issue that there is no way we should get down to that level of detail or potentially being able to identify individuals in that space. And there's definitely, that's true and something in there. But from a, I guess, scientific basis, you do sit there and go, well, it's, it's live. It can almost give you a feed that things have really changed this week, today, whatever, or it's just this team and give some sort of early insight that the stresses are physically manifesting on individuals in the workplace. Um, and so I think that you know, rather than being something you necessarily jump to, it does give a lot of food for thought that in the technology and AI space, how do we actually understand the change in the lived experience for people and the pressures that they're feeling compared to either when they first got there or even the day before, that could help drive a bit of better diagnostic and, and understanding because if, for example, we could understand from the thermal imaging the stresses that were going and then the AI can read all of the documentation going back and forth on the project through the document control system and understand that there's change controls, delays, whatever it is, the AI could pretty much start putting together a story as, you know, the change control, the late delivery of the facade or whatever is adding physical stress to people working in this or that zone um, and give us something a bit more diagnostic. So, you know, I think for people a lot brighter than me in the tech space, it's something in there that's probably worth looking at into the future. Um, and, and in the meantime, it's just better mechanisms just to check in with people and just ask the simple question of how's it going here and how's it compared to last week is is the first step in that journey. Yeah. Um, in, in some essence, like you're right, we don't have to overcomplicate things that can be, you know, pretty simple, like just having a conversation and making sure that everyone feels like they're still human. Um, the sentiment analysis is, is an interesting one. And, um, yeah, I, I don't see the value in necessarily doing it as like an early indicator that something's not right. Because by the time you're able to determine using scanners that someone's already stressed, it means that we've missed a lot of the preventative things that we could have been doing to, at least from a, a workplace perspective, what could we have done beforehand 
before that person got to that state. But if, as you say, you know, if you've got like the preceding you know, months or years of um, project data, which you then link longitudinally to that sentiment analysis, you can start to build that story about, well, what were the preceding factors? What were the psychosocial hazards that led to that sort of outcome? And then you can, when you think about the next project, how do we, like you've been saying, set that up from the beginning to set people up for success and look after their health. So yeah, I don't necessarily see the value in it of itself as like an early indicator of stress per se, but in terms of, you know, learning, how do we actually get better at work design? Um, uh, or setting up projects, I think that would actually be quite valuable. Yeah. I mean, we do similar things, right? When we do a risk assessment, we usually will follow it up three to six months later to find out people's experience of burnout, distress, that sort of thing. And that's how we build our predictive algorithms. So you're essentially doing the same thing. You're just um, automating that, that sentiment analysis with something that people don't even have to provide an input on or any um, self-awareness. Yeah. The, um, yeah, the, the ethical tightrope there is the the tricky bit though right yeah exactly and and you know in in a market like malaysia there probably be hardly any sort of opponents to it and would say that you know they'd accept it go that's great let's do this um not so much in the other markets but you know, i think there'll be there'll be some other form of predictive technology as we get better with ai and, and understanding you know even, even in construction we're finding ai challenging for pilot because um the ground plane and where everything comes everything and everyone comes in and out of the project is a common area that works well but to then as a floor goes up each time on a vertical progression of a construction site the discipline required to actually whether it's moving cameras or sensors or everything and putting them in exactly the same spot as the floor below, it's, you know, that discipline just relies on people too much, unfortunately. So, so the ground plane's a really reliable area to measure, you know, people, material, work, mood. Um, and so that's probably a place where we'll start in, in whatever analysis we look at. Yeah, no, really interesting. Mm. Um, so I'm interested in your perspective here around... Um, the, the willingness or otherwise um, for people working in that health and safety function to sort of take on the psych health and safety um, work, if you like, what, what are your, um, what are you seeing from them? Um, it's a great question because we really are seeing a mixed result. So we're seeing, so even just through our adoption of wanting to, I guess, champion what we're doing, in the mental health space, whether it's being mental health first aiders or be part of broader industry forums or partner with other providers who operate on our sites. And often it's the health and safety leader on the project who wants to do that role and take that role on. Um, others who feel that um, ironically are probably more from a construction engineering belt and their value they add in the health and safety space is actually technically facilitating safe outcomes from complex projects, they're less so. So we're kind of almost seeing this personality bent of those who are in the EHS space who just love people and want to see them go home safely um, are one group who really want to move into this space. And then you get this other who um, still care for people, but they really are wired as to how we can redesign the workplace. And so it, it's kind of this fascinating, fascinating dichotomy then is, got these workplace design from a construction perspective, people who you think are natural fits for this actually less so and those who are probably less technically natured, but just so great with people and managing the behavioral and relationship space moving into it. So um, 
you know, there, it's there's not many other sort of functions as such that are on our projects like there is the health and safety professionals. So um, they are a natural part of it. And they're generally the biggest concern is I've already got so much to do. I love this stuff, but do I really want to be accountable for the whole thing? And, and so I think as part of setting up projects to be successful, part of that thinking is who's going to own that space, who's going to, because with, with our setting up projects for success thinking, a lot of that is, okay, where will the inductions take place and where will you do, you know, the support around mental health first aiders and who's going to run the programs and are you going to bank on everyone getting four weeks leave a year and take their wellbeing days? So there's this holistic thinking that goes around it and then often the last question is, oh, well, who do we give that to to look after? And when there's no one, that's possibly going to be there health and safety lead whereas I think if if the project director or the project lead is like well you're equally you're, you're the owner of this if you want to delegate to the health and safety lead that's fine but let's make sure that we can actually give people some technical support training learning capabilities around it um, otherwise we'll have so many different interpretations of what this is and that's possibly one of our bigger challenges that's one of the successes of having global minimum requirements around physical safety is that no matter where you are in the world, that's the land lease expectation. So we, we need to make sure that if, if we're creating, well, what is the land lease expectation that um, whoever it is that's taking the lead on that is clear on it and the pathway to competency and capability um, equally is supported in the same way. Yeah, do you see there maybe becoming a role for um, like a new type of um, technical authority um, in the, like a, a centralised um, function, um, you know, like how you would have for, you know, you've got your, your technical authority for cranes or, or whatever that might be. Do you see there sort of emerging a role for a technical authority on psychosocial risk? Um, yeah, I think there is, mainly for all the reasons that sort of said is, A, it's partly misunderstood and that we're, we're an organisation that's deep into the journey and we're now sitting there going, actually, this, this, is, this is not in the technical specialty or capability of our current teams who are managing this. So how do we get some, you know, better, better advice? And so our first step is, you know, we engage with um, people like yourselves who just do this for a living to sort of check in and get some advice or, you know, I'm fortunate I live around the corner from David Burroughs, so I can kind of meet, meet him on a Friday afternoon or whatever and, and ask questions around what other people do or what could we do here but ultimately then you know we are seeing chief mental health officers starting to come into organizations and and you know we're probably moving into a space like that then once you do that I guess it it, it helps identify capability gaps and then that then flows down through the organization mm-hmm well, Chris, this has been a, a really fascinating conversation. Um, definitely solid on the health and safety content, I'd say. Um, but I think our listeners can understand why we really wanted to talk to you and feature Len Lease on the podcast, given, you know, um, your reputation. And definitely, I think everything that you've talked about from a lot of the ethical discussions that you're having and, um, you know, what you're thinking about in terms of your moral obligations and not just legal obligations, uh, I think it really does set Len Lease apart in the industry. So uh, kudos to you and your team. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it's been quite the journey and it's involved so many people over so many years and you've probably spoken to them in our other organisations along that journey as well. So, yeah, I feel really fortunate and, and you know, through my own lived experience of 
basically physically having a breakdown four years ago, I couldn't have asked for any more from an employer. So I kind of want to see everyone else be able to have that same, you know, experience should things be like that in, in their world, that they know that, you know, there was an employer that will support them no matter what. And would genuinely wants to help play their role in, you know, avoiding any sort of stresses like that manifesting again in, in such a way and generally willing to learn. So, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm fortunate I get to wake up and work at this place each day. So I'm glad that we could share a bit of the story. Yeah. So what, one of the questions, Chris, and it's probably aligned to what you've just shared actually um, that we ask all our guests on the, on the show is, um, you know, what are the, what are your hopes for the future of workplace mental health? Um, is it along those lines? Uh, yeah, it is. You know, I think that, that, experience that more people can have which is wow someone really thought about me before I got to this job mm. and, and no matter what role they're in that whether it's the workplace design or the, or the working conditions that they've got or the lack of sort of stress and pressure they're feeling compared to normal um, I think that's still the objective and yes there might be a statistical number that goes with it but um, you know at at the end of the day, you just want people to go, oh, wow, it's a breath of fresh air being here. And um, ultimately, it's it's people's partners, spouses, parents, kids are the best barometer of what that place is really like for them to work at. And so, you know, I, I think that when people's family, friends, partners go, you know, working on that side or working for that company is being fantastic because of, you know, these reasons. Um, I think that's always something really good to, to keep in mind and they're pretty powerful stories because I know a lot, even in my, you know, coming up for 17 years at Landlease, my wife's pretty good at telling me the, the bits that I was coping and the bits that I wasn't really clearly and also the bits where she felt the organisation were great for me and other times where they dropped the ball. And I think, you know, we've got 10,000 people on our books and another 50,000 working. There's 60,000 stories out there today and, I, I don't know hand on heart how many people go, oh, wow, Lindless are a good mob or where they go, um, gee, they, they really get their pound of flesh out of you. And, and I think, if, you know, we've just got to start moving that dial back to um, people going, what a great company to work for. And so hopefully we've got a good balance of that now, but there's still a long way to go. Yeah, I, I, I really like that look into the future, you know, um, people being able to say, hey, look, it's like this job was really thought about with me in mind, not just the, you know, the financial reward that the company was trying to achieve. Yeah, I think yeah. it's a pretty good vision. Yeah, yeah. And and look, to be perfectly honest, I have this discussion internally a lot. Um, there's, there's some challenges with being a listed company that when it comes down to really pushing things for profit, you do sit there and go, or if we were privately listed, would we just say, oh, it'll be three months late or it or make a couple of million dollars less and that's just that, right? So, so yeah, I, I, you know, I used to probably think it was easier in listed companies and in, in, in some ways it is, but in other ways, I think the, the pressure to actually squeeze everything out is, is there. So if we, if we even then can just still hold the line, you know, I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. And, and um, there's a, in, in non-listed companies, there's obviously other pressures as well, but that's probably the one that we sort of grapple with here the most. Yeah, and hopefully investors um, continue to mature in this space and they look to invest uh, and make capital available to, you know, ethically and, and morally uh, inclined companies 
and not just look at the pure, you know, dollars and cents. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so last question for you today, Chris, do you have any words of advice for listeners who are interested in working in the psych health and safety field? Um, in the, a, there's such a need out there and um, some there are a lot of companies who aren't ready or don't exactly know what they're after, but there's a huge amount post-pandemic that do. So I think for those that want to work in this space, um, just remember companies are wired to sort of destination risk and, and they've always got objectives and goals and where you can add value is point out to them the journey risk and the lived experience to get to that point. Um, and because it's a really powerful thing when you can open people's eyes to it and it'll leave you in good stead. And if, if people are sort of technically capable in this space, then it's really powerful to be able to tell the story through the lens of what it will be like for someone to work in those places and what it would be like if we did it an alternative way. So I think that art of storytelling and technical knowledge is really powerful. Yeah, that's fantastic. I, I love that idea of, um, yeah, t- telling the story about the experience of the person who's going to be doing this job to get you to the point of making this profit. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, right, because when we uh, map out features, we talk about the user experience and, yeah. the, and the different people that are involved in their personas yeah. and their yeah their journey. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting. Um, yeah, rather than focusing on the destination so much, the journey to get there as well, what does that look like? Mm. Yeah, no, I love it. Chris, Actually, I love pretty much everything that you've talked about on, on the podcast today. So, uh, again, I really valued it and I'm sure our listeners are going to get a, a heck out of a, a lot out of this uh, this podcast mm-hmm. episode as well. So thanks again so much for sharing. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a privilege. I loved it. So thanks again. Terrific. Well, I'm sure we'll have you on again at some stage. Um, but look, thank, thank you so much. Uh, but listeners, that brings us to the end of this episode. Um, so remember, we do video these episodes when we have our conversations with our amazing guests. So you can check out that video on the Flourish TX YouTube page. Um, we'll also take some of the best clips from today's episode, and there's going to be a few to choose from. Um, that will be on the LinkedIn page for Flourish TX. And while you're over on LinkedIn, then uh, feel free to connect with Joelle and myself, and uh, we'll be happy to continue the conversation over there. Um, But that brings us to the end, listeners. We'll catch you next episode. You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on psychological injury prevention, follow Flourish DX on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Psych Health and Safety Podcast at www.psychhealthandsafety.com.